I think it is our job and our work to really understand like who is dreaming this and what are they hoping for? So when I work with people and we're helping them kind of set their goals, if you want to use that language, I will ask them, who's wanting this in you? A lot of times it's some wounded young part of them. This is how I'm going to show my dad I'm not weak. This is how I'm going to finally prove that I'm not X, Y, Z once and for all. Okay. Is that really the, the part of us we want leading our lives? And it's not always 100% that, but we want to really draw that part out because it can drive us nuts and it will leave us empty. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrop. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Well, I'm thrilled to welcome to this week's show, Trip Lanier. Trip is an author, he's a coach, and he is the host of the New Man Podcast. Welcome, Trip. Hey, Luke. Thanks. Good to see you again. Good to hang out with you. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. So, finished your book recently. The book is This Book Will Make You Dangerous. And I wanted to have you on the show to talk about, you know, this wonderful, wonderful book. And, you know, I think maybe just a good place to start is why do kids suck, Trip? <laughs> you tell me you've got more of them. Uh, <laughs> that, one, that one could get me in trouble. Yeah, kids suck new things. Everything's new to them. So if they're eating or walking or learning to draw, they suck and they don't really care if they suck. And I think they're wonderful teachers for us to get over ourselves and just remember that anything we set out to do. Uh, we're going to suck at it. It doesn't mean that we're always going to suck at it. It doesn't mean that it's never going to be fun or interesting, but I think so many of us are living such small lives. I know I can, like just to live a smaller life because I'm afraid to go through that new period of sucking and I don't want to see myself sucking or my work to be less than whatever it is. And I know this is true for a lot of the people that I work with. It's like, well, what if we were able to be kids again? And we didn't worry about that. We were okay with sucking. And so... Yeah, that's what, that's what we're talking about in that part of the book. Yeah. One of the things I loved about your book is you, you've created several polarities, essentially, right? And, and tried to demystify, shift a focus from one way of thinking to another. You know, you've got this idea of knowledge versus practice, right? The idea of outcome versus experience, the idea of attention versus love. And I thought, you know, as a way of just un understanding some of these concepts, we might just unpack a few of these. What is the difference between or the importance of you know, knowledge versus practice? We can all do a thing, right? We can ride a bike or we can cook a meal or we can go for a walk. And the experience of doing that thing is far different than, okay, well, I've read five books on how to do that thing. So I understand how walking works right? Which is far different than I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk across the room over to that couch. And if I've never done that before, it's very awkward. It's a felt experience. It's embodied. There are all kinds of things that have to happen within our bodies and our brains to understand what's going on there. And it's, it's outside of the realm of our cognitive understanding. And so I like to help us remember what that's like, because it's very comfortable to hang out in what we know versus what we can embody and experience as we go through the world. I'll pause there and see if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
you know, one of the importance around the idea of practice is that it is iterative as well, right? Back to this idea that why do kids suck, right? Because kids are making mistakes to figure out the better way to do it, to find the way that works for them, right? And it's one thing to know about something. It's another thing to daily hack away and try different things and try to treat our life as a practice, whether it's growing our business or our relationship or our parenting, that we're in a constant iterative cycle of improvement is a much more effective and, and kind of a more relieving way to be. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, there's this myth of being ready. And I, a lot of the people that I coach are moving into this next phase of their life or their profession or whatever it is. And there's somehow this belief that if I have more knowledge and I have more understanding of it, then I'll be ready, whatever that means. And really ready is just, I want to feel confident and I don't want to fall on my face. And I want to, I want to have the certainty that that's not going to happen. And a lot of times, like sometimes we just got to jump in and get going and realize we can swim, even if we get wet or whatever happens, we'll be fine and we'll figure it out. So there could just be this place where we can spin our wheels and learn about a thing or research a thing or fool ourselves into believing that that learning and researching is the same as doing it. For instance, I think I spent probably two, three years reading about meditation before I actually started meditating. That's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, but, but a lot of us can do those types of things where it's just like no amount of reading about it was going to help me when it came time to just sit on the damn cushion and follow my breath. And that was much different than wanting to have this control and this understanding of things. So yeah, we got to have both. I'm not discounting the power of knowing stuff and and having knowledge, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to kick you in the butt if it's time to, to get off the diving board and into the pool. Yeah. Right on, right on. Maybe it's actually helpful to take a step back and for people to hear a little bit about the work that you do just as a coach, who do you work with and kind of a little bit about your work in the world? Yeah. So I've been coaching now for about 18 years and I'd say majority of the people that I work with tend to be men, but there's also women as well. But it's this idea of like, okay, I've done pretty good for myself and I'm lacking meaning. I'm lacking a sense of impact. There's, I've got something else that wants to live through me and as me in this lifetime. and. I'm done playing the game that I played in my 20s, where maybe it was just about money and just about status. Those things are still important. I don't want to live in a car for the next phase of my life. But at the same time, I don't want to feel like I'm betraying my deeper values and who I'm becoming. And so it's like, yeah, how do we navigate this area? How do we leverage the skills that you have so that we can have the have them utilize them in service of what is really important to you and what you feel is is trying to speak through you in this lifetime? Yeah, wonderful. You know, you actually have one of the like OG podcasts out there in the men's space. You've been doing podcasts for a very long time. Um, I've just, you know, I've listened to your podcast, goodness, well over a decade at this point. Yeah. How long have you been doing it? Yeah, that, I, that's a good question. I, I think we started in 2008, 2007, 2008. So yeah, do the math. Yeah. Going uh, since then. A long time. And, <laughs> and for many of us, it's been kind of a you know, a weekly part of our journey. And, you know, I thank you for that. If you could just say a word or two about, about the podcast. I mean, I think it has one of the greatest taglines of any, of any show I've come across, right? So perhaps that's a good way to introduce it to this crazy wisdom audience. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we started out, it was really about the men's space and kind of my belief was, you know, I was living in Boulder at the time, but 
none of my guy, none of my buddies that were dealing with problems in their relationships or their marriage or personal lives or whatever were going to read David Data. They weren't going to read Osho. They weren't going to read Ken Wilber. They weren't going to go into this deep stuff. They sure as hell weren't going to go on a retreat up in the mountains and get naked and do any of that kind of you know drum circle shit. So I was, I felt like just felt called. I was like, I want to do something that helps bring some of that wisdom down off the mountain so the rest of us could use it and not dumb it down, but it, but it could be translated in such, such a way so that it was more familiar. Because at that time, the whole space was owned by Oprah. It was a woman's thing to be in personal growth. And that was beautiful, but there wasn't really anything, anything there for men. And so this idea of like, well, what's beyond the macho jerk and what's beyond the new age wimp? That spoke to a lot of us. We didn't want to be either one of those archetypes. And so it was this, this question of like, what's possible out there? What's possible when we're willing to grow and learn and not take ourselves so seriously? And, you know, that's really been still true to this day. We're still figuring that out. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, I mean, what is your view on the current state of men and personal growth? It's no longer just owned by Oprah, but what, what is your kind of view? of? I'm ecstatic. And I'll tell you why I'm ecstatic, because I didn't anticipate that there would be so many conversations happening. At the time when we came out, it was, we were weird. We were the weirdos. And I remember feeling confronted and vulnerable and like, wow, who the hell listens? What kind of a guy listens to this shit? And, and it was just along those ways. And now that it's, it's flooded, it's flooded with this stuff. And I feel relaxed. I'm like, this is, this is way beyond what I ever could have imagined. And it happened in such a short period of time. So the fact that more and more guys, that a whole generation is coming up. I get emails from guys that are in their teens and 20s that have been able to listen to these types of conversations from a very, at this early age. And they, they are like, oh, I'm 21 and I'm having this problem. I was like, you're fine. I couldn't even tie my shoes at 21. You're going to be just fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're, everything's going to be good. You're doing great, my man. Just keep at it. So I'm excited. I'm excited for the younger generation coming up, having so many different voices in this space and that it seems to have normalized growth because when I was coming up, growth was associated with weakness. It was if you were if you were introspective or if you were looking to improve something in yourself other than your biceps, that you were somehow admitting weakness in some way. And so it, now it's just doesn't it's not a big deal. And I love it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Well said. I mean, that is a shift that has happened over the last 20 years, right? Like this idea that it, not universally, but there is enough of kind of a critical kind of consciousness around this idea that men can have a strong spine, be, you know, in their full force of their, you know, masculinity and their manhood and still have one eye in on their own heart and their mind and their emotions and their hopes and their dreams and their desires and their fears and their doubts and their shadows, that that actually can lead to more strength. Whereas I think, you know, when I started doing men's work 20 plus years ago, we were definitely the freaks and we were, you know, we were definitely out on the outskirts as far as like gravitational center of what it meant to be a man. So I agree. I think it's, it's something to celebrate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just more, more people in the conversation, the fact that there, there can be a larger conversation and it's not dominated by one particular viewpoint of what it means to be a man or whatever. That's like, awesome. It's all above. It's so much more above ground now instead of being repressed. Anybody that's struggling with something these days, there's really no excuse. You can listen to any podcast. You, there's just so many things that are out there and it's except, you know, there's, there's less of a stigma around it that if you're curious about this stuff and any, and I mean, 
the fact that even at a high level, a very popular level, there's there there are conversations happening that that wouldn't be happening ten years ago. It's yeah. really great. Amen to that. Right on. So one of the framings that you use in your book that I found incredibly useful was the distinction between an outcome and an experience. And when we think about wanting to, I mean, this is in the context of like creating our dreams and our hopes and our goals for ourselves. I'd love to just spend a few moments on this, this distinction with you. Yeah. Can, can you help us understand like what is the difference between experience and outcome and why is it important? Well, I think it's important to just underline what most of us tend to do when we set goals. And I'm going to be really clear. I don't have a, I don't have a beef with goals. But I think that the way we set goals tends to be a little short-sighted. It's a theory. Our goals tend to be a theory and, and our goals tend to be, they are focused on an outcome. So you put this thing on your vision board, it's the car, it's the house, it's whatever, it's, but it's typically a thing. I'm going to reach this objective outcome. Okay, that's fine. But what I've found as being a coach for so long was that I would help people create these outcomes and they would just kind of shrug it off and you know, in, almost in a matter of hours, still kind of be stuck internally in a certain place. Like something hadn't changed. And I realized that we have an objective outcome, but then there's an internal experience. And I got tired of watching people that had pursued quote success, the money, the status, living in this neighborhood, having these accolades, whatever it was, and feel like something was wrong. And when I helped people unpack what that was, they believed that if they got all of that stuff, those objective outcomes, they would feel differently. They wouldn't feel empty. They thought they'd feel important. They thought they'd feel like something had to be wrong because they felt trapped. They felt drained. They felt isolated from the people that they loved. They felt bored. They felt overwhelmed. And there was like, what the hell? This wasn't supposed to happen. I was in medical school for however many years. I went to law school for whatever. I did this other thing for so long. This isn't, I'm not supposed to feel this way. And what I realized is that if we, no matter what the goal is, if we feel trapped or drained or isolated or bored or overwhelmed, usually means we want the flip side. So instead of trapped, we want to, we want to feel free. Instead of drained, we want to feel energized or alive. Instead of isolated, we want to feel deep love, deep connection with the people that we care about. Instead of bored or overwhelmed, we want peace of mind. And I said, great, I'm going to go forward and I'll help people work at their goals, but we've got to understand that their goals are ultimately in services, in service of these experiences. And if we lose sight of those experiences, then we're off track. And the beautiful thing about those experiences is that we don't have to wait until we cross some finish line down the road because we're usually caught up in this cycle of deprivation. Once I, once I get those things done, then I can feel free. Then I can feel alive. Then I can feel connected. But until then, I have to deprive myself. And there's this, this kind of rat racer mentality. Stop me if you've heard this one before. So it's this, what can we do along the way? What can we do today that would have us feel more free? What can we do today that would have us feel more alive, more at peace, more connected and loving? And I found that that tends to relax this fixation we have on these outcomes that we're trying to achieve because we're actually scratching the itch that we ultimately want to have, want to have it uh, scratched. Yeah. And paradoxically, that action actually gets us qu closer to that which we desire, right? Um, making the small movements on a day-to-day -to -day towards the experience creates, it generates this, this momentum that maybe we were froze, frozen from before. I think we can really all feel the intelligence of this when we think about, you know, success in the world and attainment and maybe like some of our, you know, building our, our kingdom. Um, where I find this 
even more interesting is some of the examples you give in the relationship space, right? You know, you talk about like if you're in a monogamous relationship and you've got this unscratchable itch for, you know, another woman or non-monogamy, like how do we, you know, like how does that show up here? I think that's an interesting question, right? Yeah. So I talk about, I actually had a conversation with a guy that was getting ready to get married and and he was really been out of shape because he was like, you know, I really love my fiance. I'm really excited to get married. And I also just feel like my whole life is crumbling apart. And I was like, well, what's the thing that you feel like you're closing the door on? And he's like, a harem. I want to have a harem. And I wasn't expecting him to say he wanted a harem. Because <laughs> <laughs> a harem to me just sounds like a gigantic pain in the ass. Like trying to manage all that just sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, but when we unpacked what a harem meant for him, how would we know a harem was satisfying? And it was just exciting. It was novelty. It was the freedom to explore. And so for him, marriage meant that he was going to be saying goodbye to excitement and novelty and exploration. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. What if we just focused on that? And that could be a conversation that you sit down with your fiance. Because I'm wondering if she's really excited to give up on novelty and excitement and, and choice in her world as well. And you know, because she was young and adventurous too. And, and so he just like, oh yeah, she probably isn't, she doesn't want that to happen either. And so we were able to drill down to what it was really about. The idea of a harem was a theory. It was a theory that that's where the excitement and the aliveness and the novelty existed. But really he wanted those experiences. And I said, great, well, how could you guys fly the flag for those experiences with one another instead of fixating on the thing, which is a harem in his mind? Yeah. So, so really understanding the experience behind the desire, right? The qualities, the textures, deeper motivations beneath the, the surface level desire, and then focusing on how we, you know, how we get those met. Yeah. And not only that, but when you voice that with your partner and your partner's like, I want I stand with you there. I want that for you in this lifetime. Then I've noticed with my partner, like my wife, I feel devotion. Like knowing she has my back, she's like, yes, I want that for you. I want you to have X experience in your life and I want to help you and I want to serve you and whatever I can do to support you. And it's like, man, I just want to be with you even more. It galvanizes the relationship to feel like, wow, this is my ride or die. She's really on this ride with me. She's not my mommy and she's not my, some authority that has the key to whether I get to enjoy my life or not. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah, I mean, this particularly becomes vivid in these, in, you know, in kind of the sexual realms, right? Like, if we're, if we're stuffing some sort of sexual desire or fantasy and we're not in touch with the deeper textures and qualities beneath it, it can kind of eat away at us, right? So this is where bringing those to the surface, talking about the experience beneath the surface level desire can be quite liberating. And as you say, a gift to the relationship, to the marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, we, we, my wife and I were on our honeymoon and we had made an agreement beforehand that we were going to expect us to have a complete car crash on the, on the honeymoon. Like we're just expecting <laughs> just to like, what if we get on the honeymoon and it just all goes sideways and we freak out that we just got married. That, that's okay. It's totally okay. We're going to, both of us are just going to lose our minds and it, it'll be fine. And we're in Hawaii and we went to this private beach and this, these two beautiful young women come down to the beach and park their towel, not, not too far away from us. Like they could have gone farther away and they took their tops off and they're like rubbing oil on. And I'm like, Oh, somebody <laughs> paid for this to happen. I'm on my honeymoon and now this is happening and I'm losing my mind. I'm like, no, you know, just like I'm trapped. I'll never be able to have fun with it. You know, it's like, oh, and I told my wife, I said, I'm freaking out, losing it right now. And 
you know, we were both just sitting there watching this happen. And she's like, you can go over there. It's your choice. And I was like, huh? And she, what she was doing, she was refusing to be the one that said you can or can't do anything. She was clear there was a consequence. She's like, I'm not going to really, I'm not okay. Like, it's going to hurt me. Your choice to be with them versus me, that would hurt me. But it's your choice. And you have that choice. And in that moment, so much evaporated. First, we were out of the drama triangle. I couldn't make her the bad guy anymore. And I wasn't, I couldn't be the victim anymore. And then I realized, oh shit, there's no way I'm going over there because those women don't want anything to do with me. So that's off the table. (laughs) (laughs) It was just this bucket of cold water on this fantasy that I was stuck and I was trapped and it was poor me, this whole thing. And I realized like, I don't want to hurt my wife. Hmm. And this is my choice. I always have a choice. I have a choice every morning when I wake up to be with this person. And it was very empowering. And I felt more devotion and more connected to her and like, I do want to be with her. I love this woman. And, and it just woke me up out of this poor me cycle, which I think a lot of us can get stuck in if we're unwilling to take ownership of our desire or to speak up or whatever that is. And that's, that's another thing to you're speaking to, to bring that into the relationship and take responsibility for it. But that, that was a big lesson for me. And I just remember relaxing a ton after that. Yeah, you're right. It is my choice. Yeah. And I think we can all just imagine and feel the strength and vulnerability from her to, to kind of not get sucked in, right? That takes a level of depth in one's being and kind of self-confidence and, and groundedness to, to not take the bait, right? Right. She didn't take the bait. And um, I think had she pushed back and be like, no, you can't, and you know, played that dynamic, I, I would have gotten sucked into that place of like, oh, I'll show you. Just, with a, just a messy dynamic. You know, and you don't tell me what to do, just whatever that bullshit is. And it <laughs> turns into a pissing match instead of like, go on, knock yourself out. Right on, right on. So this stems from this idea of experience rather than outcome. There's another framing that you use that I really like, which is love versus attention. And I'm wondering if you could just say a few words about this. Help us understand why is love different than attention. Yeah. It's easy to make attention bad, especially in in our social media world. But attention has that dopamine hit of, oh, you noticed me and I get to feel important for an instant. And for me, that has a thing of, I never get an, I can never get enough of that. Like I'm already salivating and wanting the next hit. So I'm a person that is addicted to sugar and I have to really watch my sugar thing because when I have sugar, I don't get enough sugar. You guys will find like they found Tripp's body in a in a you know in a semi-trailer of sugar. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it'll just that'll be it. Like, oh yeah, he told me that would happen. You know, it was like <laughs> there's never enough of that. Whereas I find love when we really are genuinely loved and we're genuinely seen and genuinely cared for, it's nourishing. Hmm. It's nourishing. So Junk food isn't nourishing, kind of leads us to always needing more and kind of filling ourselves with these empty calories. And then love is nourishing, like, ah, oh, I'm good. I can just, ah, oh, you know, I feel, I feel fulfilled in this place. And so for me, it's more of an experience of that. But yeah, if you've never really had an experience of love at that level, then we can get confused and think that attention is what we need more of. Yeah. So this becomes particularly important when we think about the choices we make to kind of 
build the life we desire, right? Like when we, if, if we think about this dynamic in the context of going after our dreams, of, of going after experiences that we want, um, oftentimes we can delude ourselves and become distracted by this external attention, right? Help us understand what this, what is going after one's dreams from a place of love? What is, how is that different? Going after our dreams from a place of love. This gets into some pretty deeper stuff, which is understanding who, who's dreaming, who within us is dreaming. If it is that part of us that doesn't feel enough, if the, if the part of us that is stepping up and creating our goals on a daily basis is the part of us that is not enough, unlovable, always lacking. And the world is this place where we're always striving for more and more and more. The, the answer to that is more and more and more. I call it the curse of the achiever. It's this like shadow side of that. And we can often be rewarded like, wow, look at what this person's done. And it's amazing. And, and, but it's just the conversations I have often with some of these people, it's quite sad. It's empty inside because there isn't that nourishing love. There's not, there's not a sense of enoughness there. And so I think it's, I think it is our, our job and our, our work to really understand like who is dreaming this and what are they hoping for? So when I work with people and we're helping them kind of set their goals, if you want to use that language, it, I will ask them who, who's, at, who's wanting this in you. And it, a lot of times it's some wounded, wounded young part of them. Well, this is what I need to do to stick it to those kids in seventh grade that told me I was a pussy to use their language, right? Like this is, this is how I'm going to show my dad. I'm not weak. This is how I'm going to, whatever. Like I'll finally prove that I'm not X, Y, Z once and for all. Okay. Is that really the, the part of us we want leading our lives? And it's not always a hundred percent that, but we want to really draw that part out because it can drive us nuts and it will leave us empty. And so just having an awareness of who's in the room and who's wanting to call the shots. And if it's coming from this proving or protecting or pleasing or some of these other fear or scarcity parts of ourselves. I like to get those characters out in the open as early on as possible so that we can love them and, and kind of help them find what they're really needing so that we can get more into the deeper aspects of ourselves. So that's not like, what am I going to get from the world? But what am I here to give? What am I here to express? What am I here to create? What am I here to experience? And those are much different conversations than Oh yeah, you watch me just as soon as I knock this out. There's like, oh, okay, we're here to has this get energy to it. And that's usually the part of us that can never be satisfied. Hmm. Yeah. Amen, brother. David Data in one of his books, he writes about this idea of living as if your father was already dead, right? And it's the same thing. I mean, I think you and I both had fathers that were quite supportive and, you know, good men and maybe unique in the way that at least for me, I didn't have a lot of pressure put on me by my father about needing to be a certain way. But most men, I think a lot of men have this experience and women for that, for that matter, like that our parents have certain expectations that, that are placed upon us that aren't necessarily the truth of our own heart or mind. And so we maybe unconsciously are forever seeking the approval of our father or our mother in all of the choices we make about how we spend our time and what we work on and how we love. So this idea of living as if our father is already dead can be quite liberating in that we're saying, I'm not going to make a decision based on the unconscious approval of my parents. Yeah. 
Yeah. And as someone who's lived large part of my life with my mother being dead, it doesn't mean they're gone. And Mm -hmm. that voice or those, that, that wiring, that programming, that generational thing just gets hooked in. And if we don't know how to, it's like a pair of glasses. If we don't recognize that, it could be the glimpses, the lenses we're looking through in our lives. So I totally agree with that. And I think we've got to push it a step further because even people that have long since passed are still within us and they are now occupied. It's not so much them, but Don Miguel Ruiz calls it domestication. It's when we internalize that. I call it external authority, but it gets into our brain and it, it blocks our ability to listen to our inner authority, the one our self energy, as Richard Schwartz calls it in IFS, mm-hmm. listening for that capital S part of our, us, our essence that wants to speak through us and as us. And the things that eclipse it will be parents, you know, young people, the, the stuff that we had growing up. And we want to understand who those parts are as early as possible. And like, oh, there you go. I expected you to show up when, when, yeah. when I got into yeah. a relationship. I've got an eye on you. And, and like know where the landmines are buried in our yard. It's like, I know when we get into this conversation, I'm probably going to lose my shit. So let's just name that. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't ever necessarily go away, but you just get to learn what that is and be honest with your partner and yourself about that. If we talk a little insider baseball talk here as, as coaches, and maybe there's some other coaches that are listening to this or just people that are curious, like how do you get at somebody's true essence and how do you help them in that process of discernment of knowing whether it's their truth or the truth of some tape of their parents or some kind of unresolved childhood trauma that they're trying to work out. Like what's the, what's your process as a coach around helping people make that distinction? I think they've got to be the ones to see it and say for themselves. And so if anything, I I just try to draw it out and reflect it back. So you're saying you should, to use your word, you should do X, Y, Z. You're supposed to do X, Y, Z, right? Wow. Okay. And then I'll give them some space and they're like, that sounds kind of silly. And like, oh, does it? Well, where do you think that came from? That sounds like my dad. Oh yeah. Kind of like, well, well, is there something else? What else might be true too? What else is true? So it's not either or, but there might be something that might be more true. What if we didn't need this dad thing? Or what if we didn't need this mom thing? Or are you needing to be big or impressive? in order to do X, Y, Z, what else want to happen? And a lot of times it's back there. They, they do know, oh, well, if I wasn't afraid or the thing I'm waiting to do is this other, okay, great. What if we started to lean into that? And then they shit their pants a little bit and we slow it down, but that's the, (laughs) (laughs) but that's usually it. It's like, that's what I'm waiting to do. I'm waiting for permission to do this other thing, but first I got to check these boxes and be enough to these other parts. And then I can go and do the important stuff. And it's just great to lay it out. And some days they're like, like, yeah, I'm ready. And other days like, no way, I can't do that just yet. Yeah. I, I get curious for you. Like what's your, what is the role of psychotherapy as opposed to the role of coaching? Like, I'm curious how you answer that question, you know, because we're, you're, we're starting to get into this territory of like deeper psychological wounds and programming and trauma. And, you know, I'm, yeah. So I'm just curious how you handle that for yourself. I see the role of coaching as a creative process. So I came, I went to art school. I was a musician. I've made records. I'm used to the frame of coaching being that mentor or as a music producer, helping the artist figure out the thing they're trying to do and help them bring it. So it's not imposed on the artist. It is, what is the artist trying to say? How can I help the artist get out of their own way so they can make the 
the song they're trying to write or the painting or whatever it is. And in this case, it's their life or their profession or their relationship. So it's just helping them remove obstacles. And then there's the thing there. The, the thing is there. It's just a matter of removing some of these things that are in the way. For therapy, I see the frame as healing. So maybe, you know, I've had an injury psychologically and I've I need to get back to baseline again so that I can function well in XYZ or whatever. I, you know, a few months ago I had a psychedelic experience and it just completely fucking threw me upside down and I needed help. I needed help to get back to baseline. And that was the frame for that help. And so I, as a coach, I may use a lot of the same tools with somebody. And, and sometimes if we'd really, if the gears are really gummed up, then I like to work parallel with a therapist to have somebody come in and, and their gift is to really help in the healing realm so that, oh, great, now we're back at baseline and now we can, we've got more freedom of expression and ability to go and, and create X, Y, Z. Uh, I love this framing, man. I really do. It's, and I can see it for you, you know, your own journey as an artist. And I just know you to be like a super creative human and to, to frame your work as being kind of a shepherd of the creative process, that, that really, that makes a lot of sense. I get curious for your own writing this book, what that process was like, just the creative process for you. You mentioned, you know, at times you had to kind of sort some things out with your wife and, and she was there for you. I think in the acknowledgments, you talk about, you know, that journey being pretty intense. And I'd love to just understand a little bit of that here from the lens of your own creative process. Of writing the book? Writing the book, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing, so that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> First book, huh? <laughs> So like the kids, I suck. <laughs> I think I wrote an entire other book and I remember, I remember finishing it and being like, okay, now I know the book that I need to write. Mm, wow. And th that first book was just like a vomit thing. And it was 150,000 words, which is three times the size of a typical book. And, and it was just a lot of mess, <laughs> but it, I probably could have gotten through the process a lot easier, but that's in the rear view mirror now. But the, I got through that and then I realized, okay, this is what I really take a stand for. This is, I'm clear on what I want to take a stand for and, and I want to put into a book and I, I see it now. Because when I started, I really didn't understand what I was taking a stand for and that what I wanted to communicate. So it was really messy in that regard. And I probably could have used a better music producer in that, you know, to use that analogy, somebody could have helped me out a little better there. But so that was, that was frustrating. But at the same time, I was like, whatever it took, we got it out the door. Kind of thing. The book that you have in your hands is is I think it was just a matter of a few days. Like it felt like a few days. It was just like, oh, got it. Boom. Here we go. Mm -hmm. And it just, there it was. What did you learn about yourself in that? Well, as a coach, I, I had lived with a, a story that I didn't, uh, I wasn't somebody who could teach or I had anything to teach that the, the process that I did with people and that I described with you wasn't something that goes into a book. It's more of a receptive process than a prescriptive one. So the work that I do is more about listening and drawing things out. And so I was operating from this frame that, well, that's me. I don't really have a thing to say, which if you've ever talked to me, I, that's not true. But the <laughs> Definitely not true. <laughs> so, but uh, when I got into it, I was like, oh, this is, there is something here. There is something to this process. There is something that I take a stand for. And, and I felt confident but that I was in my way for a while of this, that I don't have anything really to say. And, I don't know if it was just wonderful doubt to have if you're scared to do something. And that was true too. Mm, beautiful, man.
There was one other part in the book that I found to be really interesting that I wanted to ask you about. This idea that there's this story out there that men, especially younger men, sometimes lack commitment, right? And especially when we think about this in relationship, right? Like why don't, why won't he commit? Why, why isn't he committing to me? He is afraid of commitment. And your point is what? He's, he's already committed. He's already committed. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> he's so, already so can, committed. Right. Help yeah. us understand this. Uh, I just don't believe that there's anything as such thing as a commitment phobe. It's just we're already committed to something else. And if you understand what that other commitment is, and it usually lives in the, in the world of comfort or safety or looking good, you know, status, you know, self, you know, identity, self-image. You understand that we're typically protecting those things and really unwilling to budge in some area there, then you can really, you can work with it. Okay. So getting, being in the relate in a relationship with this person means I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to be giving up something or whatever it is. You just start, you can start to chip away at the fears that, that go against these other commitments, freedom, aliveness, the harem guy, right? So it's just coming back to, being in this relationship means I won't be free anymore. I won't have any aliveness or novelty. I'm going to be cut off from the other people that I care about in my life. I'm going to be stuck and bored and whatever, right? So you unpack that stuff. You can usually work with it. Hey, this is my fear. Commitment to you means this. Is that true? And uh, no, or yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want you to be boxed up and miserable for the next year. <laughs> like, but for some people, it's just, we're not, I think it's lazy when we say commitment. We're not really identifying what that means. So what am I, what am I afraid I'm giving up? And, or what am I afraid is going to happen? And if you can start to identify that stuff and speak to it, then you can understand what somebody's really holding on to. And they are not you know, going to give that up. They're committed to that thing. They're holding on to it. Yeah, it's a beautiful inquiry, right? Like, what am I most committed to? There is a surface level kind of, response that we can say we're, we're lacking commitment, we're lacking even follow through, right? But if we're more committed to comfort, more committed to avoiding rejection, more committed to avoiding failure than taking risks and, you know, digging deep, or we're more committed to curiosity about what a new experience could be, that, that actually can change our behaviors, right? Yeah. If you understand what those things are, then you can get creative in what can we do to reduce that risk? What can we do to reduce that discomfort and start, oh, well, I'd be willing to move in that direction. I'd be willing to experiment and see. Let's yeah. create it. Let's create a commitment around XYZ for three months, not for my lifetime or whatever it is. But there's, there's, there's ways to chunk things down so that we typically will have like a place where like, yeah, okay, that sounds, I'm willing to try that. And you're like, oh, interesting. I just relaxed because I still left space for myself to speak up or I'm going to, you know, it's really like we feel like we're going to give up our power. Like we're going to, I'm going to be stuck. I'm going to be trapped. I'm not going to be able to utilize my power. I'm going to lose control or something like that. If I go down this road in my career or I go down this road in a relationship and if you can just speak to that, learn to, learn to identify that that's what it's really about. And you might find that your partner's on the same page and willing to talk about it. Like, well, I don't want that for you either. So how can we start to play with this instead of keeping it tucked away and you living in this world where that's what our relationship means? Yeah. And there's just so much wisdom in giving voice to these deeper fears, right? And really 
you know, one of the things I do with my clients is like, you know, let's, we'll do doomsday scenario. Let's take this fear all the way to the end, just following a fear all the way to the worst possible outcome. And then we can kind of work our way back around what are our needs based on that. And, and that's where we can begin to adjust, change our behavior, right? But so often the fear lives in the shadow and we're not actually turning around and, and facing maybe the worst case scenario, right? Facing it, but even in that doomsday scenario, I do that one too. And usually ends up in bus station bathrooms having to perform sexual favors. I don't know what the commonality is there, but the- <laughs> yeah, Hey, you're right. Actually, I do notice that. That comes out all the time with my CEO clients. No. All the time. I'm at the bus station and the bathroom earning 10 bucks at a time. I can't speak up. Like it's this cascading river of terrible things and I don't have a voice. I don't have a voice. I can't speak up and say, no, I'm not okay with this. Or I want X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, yeah, of course I would be afraid to go into any situation where I don't have a voice. And so that could be a skill building scenario where, hey, I would love to do ABC and learning how to speak up, whether it's with our business partner, it's with our partner at home, whomever it might be. But a lot of us are don't have that real deep sense that we can speak up and, and make a proposal or make a request and it'll be okay. And usually the confidence comes like, wow, I can speak up. So it's not that I need to have all hundred steps planned out. It's I can go step by step by step and know that I can course correct at any time. And that's where we find genuine peace of mind. Not I have it all figured out and I have my castle up on the hill and nothing can attack me. It's I can go step by step and figure it out. And that's where we relax. Amen. You know, in my own experience and coaching people for so many years now, momentum is so critical, right? To just start to take some actions towards what we're desiring and to be in that iterative process of discovery and failure is, you know, 80% of it is to just to begin moving in the right direction. So, okay. So this is my friend, Trip Lanier. Trip, if people want to find this fantastic book, where do they find it? Amazon, anywhere you get your books. You can order it as well if you're overseas. And also dangerousbookstore.com has uh, links to Audible and Kindle and all, all the versions that are available. There's like this little funny Easter egg in the Audible version where occasionally throughout the, the reading of the story, Trip will laugh at his own jokes and make a side <laughs> and make a sides like, wow, I can't believe I actually wrote that. <laughs> There's a couple of real, really funny moments in, in your in your audible version of this. Uh, so I was both inspired and laughing my ass off during your book. So thank you, my friend. And please let us know where if people want to know more about your work as a coach. And your podcast, where do they where do they find out about these? Yeah, triplinear.com, T-R-I-P-P-L-A-N-I-E-R. Triplinear. Thank you so much, Trip. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. And maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our crazy wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing, one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy. 